This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. Uh, I'm Duke Kip, uh, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, and delighted to bring with you uh, today a great guest as usual. We have with us Ms. Mei-Ying Chuck. Uh, she's the lead for food and agriculture corporate, co- I'm sorry, corporate partnerships rather here in Asia Pacific with Save the Children International. Hi, Mei-Ying. Hi, Duke. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Well, if you're okay, we'll, we'll jump right into the, uh, the five questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first, like just out of the gate, maybe talk a little bit about Save the Children International. Uh, of course, um, sharing broadly what they're all about. And for those unfamiliar, maybe uh, give us a little bit of some insights, perhaps, into why Save the Children maintains such a, a specific focus on agricultural value chains. Yeah, thanks, Duke. I mean, that seems like a simple question, but there's a lot to cover here. So bear with me. Um, first, what Save the Children's about? Uh, Save the Children's all about the rights of children. We work to improve the lives of children through better education, healthcare, and economic opportunities. And we do this both through long-term programs and also in emergency and humanitarian situations. Interestingly, we were founded in 1919, and this was during a time um, that was rife with child labor and exploitation. And we were founded by a brilliant and unconventional woman. Uh, She was called Eglantine Jeb. And she fought for children's rights before it was even a concept. And we continue her work today all over the world to make sure children are healthy, that they're learning, and they're protected. Now, we have come a long way since Eglantine Jack's time. Um, You know, the percentages of kids in child labor have dropped drastically, and there are actually laws against child labor now. So, you know, I wish I could say this is no longer an issue, but it still is. Absolute numbers of child, uh, children in labor have gone down since the year 2000. But in the last four years, there's actually been an increase of 8 million children worldwide. The, um, the ILO, they reported last year that there are now 160 million uh, children in child labor. And 30% of those kids are here in the Asia Pacific. So you asked, um, the other part of your question, right, was why we focus on agriculture value chains. So, um, well, guess what? 70% of the the 160 million children in child labor, um, they are in agriculture. So I want to spend a few minutes, if that's all right, um, talking about why this matters beyond the obvious. You know, um, now we're not saying that children cannot do a bit of light work to help out at home, but when it starts um, to affect their health, their studies and their development, that is an issue. And, These kids who are in agriculture, they are predominantly caught up in family-based labor. And you would think, right, that this actually means that they are in safer work environments, but the work they do is often hazardous. And some of the examples that we have observed are things like um, handling sharp tools like machetes, um, carrying heavy loads, or standing for long periods of time, or bending in awkward positions, you know, um, and examples like peeling cashew nuts. So unfortunately as well, right, a lot of parents are not aware that this type of work is harmful for their children. Now, aside from the physical danger, kids who are in child labor end up being too tired to study. They miss days of schools, especially during um, harvest periods. 
And this impacts their ability to keep up at school and even to stay in school. And this, of course, has repercussions for their longer term future altogether. And um, unfortunately, child labor isn't the only issue. It is probably the most visible in agriculture, but it's not the only issue. Um, children in um, agriculture are impacted in so many other ways. Um, and it's largely driven by lack of income, lack of awareness, and lack of access to basic services. And these are all interconnected. So, you know, for example, um, lack of income could lead to food insecurity and therefore malnutrition. It could lead to children dropping out of schools to help on farms. Lack of awareness around health issues could lead to, let's say, uh, bacterial infections from animals, reduce health, uh, a reduced growth or healthy growth because of lack of sleep. Um, lack of access to childcare could mean um, children dropping out of school to care for younger siblings, usually girls, right? <laughs> so they're usually the first ones to drop out of school. Um, to care for siblings, to do housework, or even worse, right, to get married off. So children in smallholder farming communities are very vulnerable. And all it takes are shocks like emergencies or disasters, which this region is no stranger to, and it's going to get worse with um, the climate crisis. These shocks can push kids into child labor or child marriage very quickly. And of course, the biggest shock in recent times has been COVID-19. Um, Save the Children did a survey in 2020 on the impact of COVID-19 on children, and 40% of um, children in a cocoa-producing community told us that they were struggling with remote learning. They either had no access or um, didn't get the, su the support at home to study, and they ended up going back into um, working on the farms. And according to the ILO again, um, they expect 9 million children, 9 million more children to be in child labour by the end of this year because of the pandemic. So Duke, that was a really long answer, but I thought it was important to outline the issues that children face in smallholder um, communities because this is quite often overlooked. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge issue. And um, you, you brought up a point that I wanted to maybe expand on a little bit, talking about mm -hmm. specifically within the rural communities and talking about, of course, here, talking about farms, right? And the smallholder farmer is such a, the narrative of the smallholder, the journey and the story of the, of the smallholder, such an important and critical component of you know, what what food production, what, 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 you know, agriculture is all about here in Asia. I'd like, maybe you could talk a little bit about, and of course, you know, smallest size farms, greatest number of smallholders, it's it is, mm -hmm. it is it is central to everything here. Can you share a little bit more, expand on what you said as far as how Save the Children is addressing some of the issues that you raise and others through these smallholder communities specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, and to your point, Asia is a huge priority for us when it comes to working with smallholder communities. Our overarching goal is to lift um, children and smallholder uh, families out of poverty so that these children can study, play, be healthy and be safe from harm and ultimately have the opportunity to grow to their fullest potential. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the issues that they face right, are multifaceted and interconnected. So likewise, our interventions also have to be multifaceted. And broadly speaking, um, our interventions fall in five categories. The first of which is to ensure that children are protected. So an example of this is you know, setting up and training child protection committees that are made up of members of the smallholder community or the village. Um, these committees are in place to create awareness about child labor and have mechanisms in place to address the issue in their, in their own um, villages or communities. The second category is around education or learning to keep uh, children learning. And an example would be um, teaching young people or youth life and entrepreneurial skills 
or supporting out-of-school children with informal education so that they can keep learning even if they have to do some sort of work. Um, the third category um, are children, uh, to ensure that children are healthy. So an example could be um, ensuring access to nutritious food or delivering clean water and have good sanitation and hygiene practices. The fourth category um, is uh, strengthening livelihoods. So examples would be establishing and supporting village savings and loan associations, um, uh, training farmers on income diversification so that they are less susceptible to shocks. And the final um, category is agricultural production. So things like climate smart agriculture, which would include agroforestry and better water management. So our programs, right, will largely have interventions from some of these five categories. Um, I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, we work with Mondelez in um, uh, their Coco Life program, and we've been doing that since 2015. And the interven uh, interventions in this program include um, uh, strengthening livelihoods, right? So that, that would be um, the VSLA support, business development training, and women's and youth empowerment. Uh, we also provide good agriculture practices. And then the third category, which is um, con community-based child protection. Um, another, another company we work with also in Indonesia is in um, the palm oil communities. And there we, um, we work with youth and community members. It's very youth-centered, but we work with uh, community members as well on three fronts. Um, increasing household income through inclusive and diversified income generating activities. Um, the second one is around um, providing life skills for these adolescents and young people. And the third is health. So the youth are champions in driving good practices in um, sanitation and hygiene in their communities. And um, Duke, if I may, just one final note on this. Uh, we had a, we recently released um, a, a study on the impact of giving cash and voucher assistance to very vulnerable families. And um, there's evidence that this actually has helped reduce child labor, school dropouts and um, child marriage. And I wanted to highlight this because this is an intervention that's been gaining a lot of traction. That's very interesting. Um, something you said also, of course, everything you just went through too, it, it occurred to me that, you know, this is something that say the children's doing along with, you know, these, these various partners and the, and the key component there, the, the partnership is again, so important. Can you talk a little bit more? This is our, our next question. I'm kind of pivoting on the next question. Um, the broader stakeholder engagement, the better I, I imagine. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and I know that includes certainly the business sector, corporate engagement, as you just went through some of those partners. Can you tell us a little bit more about that side of the work for Save Children? Sure, sure. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that our goal is to lift children and smallholder farming communities out of poverty. Our goal with companies when we partner them is to help them create a positive impact across their entire value chain from farm to, uh, farm to fork, so to speak. And um, I've talked at length about our work on farms, but downstream we also work with uh, companies in and around factory settings to create, for example, um, child-friendly spaces, create opportunities for decent work for young people or youth, and to provide um, child labor monitoring and remediation. Um, we also work with companies on joint uh, thought leadership. We advocate for policies that can improve um, child well-being in their value chains. And of course, we also tap on companies' um, human capital, uh, capital right? Um, we, we tap on their employees' expertise and talent. And this could be through um, skills-based volunteering, or it also could be through um, companies' R&D. So, you know, looking at nutrition-sensitive measures like farming of 
micronutrient-rich crops or developing fortified nutrient-rich food. And finally, at the fork end, um, we also work with companies on consumer-targeted activities like cost marketing campaigns and branding. Ultimately, we aspire for partnerships um, to be more than just you know, like one project here or there, but rather we want strategic partnerships that can create um, shared value from farm to fork. And a final point on this, um, maybe an observation, is that um, we're, not, we're no longer just working with the philanthropy or CSR teams. We're now also working directly with business units and responsible sourcing teams. And this is very simply because it is a business imperative for them. Companies are coming under greater public and legislative pressure to ensure that their supply chains are not causing harm to the environment or to people. For instance, the EU is now considering a mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence for companies in their member states. We don't know what um, this final legislation is going to look like yet, but we do know that this will apply not only to um, the company's operations, but also to their subsidiaries and to their value chains. So Save the Children has worked with um, smallholder communities all over the world for decades. And I'll say that in the last few years, we've been more deliberate in engaging more with companies in the food and egg value chain because more and more companies want to address these issues and they need experienced partners like us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. I want to go back, uh, maybe the next question, going back to something you brought up in one of the earlier answers, uh, climate change. Talk about climate mm -hmm. change a little bit. And as you know, uh, the IPCC, this Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, part of the UN, released yet another report um, not long ago, which um, continues to paint this very dire situation, of course, uh, for, mm -hmm. for the for the planet. And every new day, every day, there's a few, there's a new data point that sort of adds to that that portrait as we as it as it grows. Last year, I know Save the Children released a report, um, born into the climate crisis, why we must act now to secure children's rights. That particular report that came out, and there's some findings in there from that report, particularly with respect to children in Asia's rural communities, that were interesting. I wonder if maybe you could share a little bit about that and uh, what Save the Children's doing in uh, to help address the climate crisis. Sure. And thanks for bringing this up, Duke. Um, this report, Born into the Climate Crisis, was researched by Save the Children in collaboration with an international team of climate researchers. And it was actually also published in the renowned journal Science. Um, so my niece, Myra, she was born in 2020. And what this research shows is that compared to someone born in 1960, Myra and other kids born in 2020 will experience an, av an average of twice as many wildfires three times as many, um, well, three times more exposure to crop failure, 2.6 times as many drought events, three times as many river floods, and 6.8 times more heat waves in their lifetime. Here in Asia, the, I think the, 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 the higher um, averages will be um, in relation to crop failure, um, particularly South Asia, where it's 3.6 times more likely to happen, as well as heat waves, um, eight, times, uh, eight times more likely. So things look pretty bleak for Myra's generation, but what Save the Children is doing is we're, you know, we're remaining committed to building a safer, fairer future for them. So what are we doing? We currently work in over hundred countries around the world to help children and their communities to prevent, prepare for, and recover from the effects of climate-induced disasters. Globally, we implement a portfolio of more than 30 climate-specific programs valued at more than $200 million that are preparing families for the future. 
So for instance, um, in Bangladesh, we're applying a low-cost solution by using sack bags and tower gardens, which maximize land use and mitigate the risk of losing crops to flood. So we combine this with disaster preparedness training and we link families with social protection programs. So the families who participated in this were able to grow nutrient-rich vegetables, both to consume as well as to sell. And then, and they're also more prepared now for climate shocks. So the other thing that we're also doing um, is developing predictive models um, using cli climate risk data so that we can have an early warning system in place to avert large humanitarian crises. And finally, and importantly, we're um, amplifying the voices of young climate activists, basically making sure that you know, children's voices are heard in climate policy development at all levels. And just one last thing I wanted to highlight is that um, Save the Children is also the first and only child-focused humanitarian organization to be accredited by the Green Climate Fund, which is the world's largest climate fund. So this puts us in a unique position to co-develop some of the world's largest locally-led climate adaptation, food security, and climate health initiatives. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for that answer. Um, so many, so many important and serious subjects we've been talking about here. Um, and I just wonder if you wouldn't mind, we'll lighten up a little bit with the last question. We usually get into uh, uh, more of a um, forward-looking um, prediction or forecast from our from our guests. So if you would, maybe think ahead by five or 10 years and, and again, putting maybe thinking about something that's good that's happening, some progress that's being made, something you think will be realized in the next few few years, it's a good development, you know, something that you're, um, you maybe put, look in the crystal ball and say, this is, is going to happen. Mm. So projections are not really my forte, but, <laughs> but one thing I'm quite optimistic about is um, industry collaboration in the near and medium term. So I'm talking about um, collaboration across the food and ag value chain um, amongst peers, as well as amongst other stakeholders, um, such as other funders and governments. I mean, I'm sure you know, Duke, like, you know, there's already a lot of collaboration happen happening now. Um, for instance, like um, the education initiative led by the J uh, Jacobs Foundation with the cocoa sector in West Africa and here in Southeast Asia, the palm oil sector, I would say, um, you know, they collaborate quite a lot. Um, but there's still, I think, a lot of uh, cautiousness and risk averseness. Um, but, you know, with the, the legislation, like um, the expected EU directive on corporate due diligence coming, the need to collaborate across the value chain will be stronger than ever. And basically companies will be compelled to do so because of the complexities of supply chains. Um, we Save the Children are currently convening a consortium of companies who want to work together at a pre-competitive level to address child protection and child well-being issues in their smallholder communities. It's still early days, and there's of course, you know, the expected level of caution, but I'm really encouraged by the participants eagerness to find sustainable and scalable solutions together because the problem is really too big for one organization to handle on its own. And um, I, I hope that through also this desire and need to work together, you might be seeing more and more of um, innovative uh, financing solutions, such as a development or social impact bonds or impact investing. So, um, yeah, hopefully we see this in five rather than 10 years. Uh, and hopefully I'm not uh, overly confident on this. But yeah, yeah. so that's my, my projection. Yeah, I know it's a great prediction. I hope that all comes true too. And I think you're right. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of good 
a lot of good uh, promising and uh, developments that are playing out there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're officially off the five good questions hot seat. Thank you, Maine, <laughs> for doing this. And uh, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 